Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to East Shore Baptist Church. If you don't know me, my name is Pastor John. I'm so glad you're here worshiping with us this morning. I'm also thankful for those of you who are maybe watching online. Pastor Tom mentioned when he was doing the announcements about our bulletin, bulletin that document that you get in when you come in the door, the little folded one. And if you look in there, or if you've looked before, you've probably noticed a section in there that's called Evangelism Update, Evangelism Update. And what that section does is it tells a couple stories about how people in our church have shared or spoken about God to people in their lives, perhaps friends or relatives, maybe coworkers, or someone that they've just met, sharing with them about who God is, who Jesus is, and how that makes a difference in their lives. And you may wonder, why do we emphasize that so much? We have that in there every single week. Once a month, Elder Tom gets up here, Elder Tom Toon, and he shares about what we're doing in evangelism, telling others about Jesus. Why do we emphasize that? Well, the reason we do that is because we believe it is what Jesus calls his people to do. We believe he calls those who know him to go out and tell others about him, tell others about what he has done and how they can know him. That's a calling we believe that we have if we claim to be God's people. But just because that's what we're supposed to do doesn't mean that it's easy. In fact, as the title of this message says, it's a difficult, but it's a needed calling. If you've been here, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we talked about how Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth, but he was rejected by the people there. They took offense at what he said, and they didn't want anything to do with him. We tried to talk about some reasons why that happened. We mentioned that the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, predicted that when the Messiah, the Savior, would come, he would be rejected by those closest to him. We looked at that. We also talked about how maybe he was rejected because the people of his hometown were so familiar with him. They were overly familiar. They, they thought they understood who he was, and they weren't interested in what he had to say. Today, we're going to pick up immediately after that. We're going to be in Mark 6, starting in verse 7 through verse 29. Our passage today is going to turn the focus from what happened to Jesus to his followers and tell us that Jesus' followers, just like him, will also be rejected. The reason they'll be rejected is because of what they're sharing. When they share about Christ, they're telling people to repent, to turn away from sin, and turn toward faith in him. And people don't like that message. But nevertheless, God's people should respond to that rejection by continuing to do good and to share the good news. This is a message that's needed by the world around us. And it's needed because the lost world doesn't know who Jesus is. People who don't know Jesus, they break God's law, his instructions, and they devalue God's gift of life. Sharing that message about Jesus is worth it. It may cost us everything, but it's worth it, even if it costs our lives. So today we're going to look at Mark 6, 7 through 29. Normally, this is the part of the service where I'd have you stand up and we'd read God's word together, but it's a little bit longer and we have some ground to cover today. So for today, I'm just going to pray and we'll read it as we go. So before we look at it, though, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have now to look at your word and be encouraged and challenged by it. And Lord, your word gives us a warning 
that if we're faithful in following you, there will be people who reject us. They reject us, despise us, turn away from us because we have a message that people need to repent. They need to change. They need to stop doing one thing and start believing, trusting in something, someone else, you. So Lord, when we experience that, give us the strength to continue doing your good work and sharing your good news. Build in us a desire to share your truth with others because so many people do not know who you really are. So many people break your law, God, your instructions. So many people devalue the good gift of life that you've given us. So God, even if it costs us everything, help us to share about you. Not for our own sake, not for our own glory or pleasure, but because you, Jesus, are worth it. So may you be the one who we focus on today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So again, last time we left off, Jesus was rejected, and now he's going to send out his people, his followers, his apostles, his disciples. But when he does that, when Jesus sends out his people, what happens? Well, if you're using the handout I gave you, the first blank is that Jesus' people will be rejected. They will be rejected. I'm going to look and read verses 7 through 13, Mark 6, 7 through 13, starting in verse 7, says, he, Jesus, called the 12, his closest followers, and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 12 tells us that so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this is Jesus sending out his followers. It's here in Mark. We could also find this story in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke 9. But what happens here? Well, first he calls, he summons his 12 disciples and he gave them authority, authority to share his truth and authority over demons, unclean and impure spirits. By doing this, he's actually fulfilling the whole reason he got these men together in the first place. He said back in chapter 3 that he, Jesus, appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, those he sends out, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. These 12 chosen disciples have been trained, and now they're being sent out to declare Jesus' message. Maybe they didn't feel quite ready, but Jesus was ready to use them now. And so he delegated to them some of his authority, some of, of his power, what he could do. He gave it to them so they could go serve for a little bit, come back to Jesus and get some feedback from their teacher. And this is a really interesting time to send them because we would think that Jesus would send them after a great victory, a great healing, but instead he's just been rejected. And so they're going out with the knowledge that you know, people didn't like what Jesus had to say about this. 
But perhaps that was a good lesson for them, because if some places were hard for Jesus to share, they would be hard for them too. And it's still true today. Every time that God's mission, His purpose, His message advances, some accept it, some reject it. And if we're one of those who claim to follow God, we should expect that as well. Some people will like what we have to share from God's Word, others will not. Jesus was rejected, we will be too. Perhaps that's part of the reason why Jesus sends them out two by two. It could be because the Old Testament says to have a witness in a court case, you needed two witnesses, so maybe that's the reason why. But it could have also been the very practical reason that having two people, they could encourage one another and help one another, even when things were difficult. Now, in our passage, he gives them some very specific instructions. And I would say these aren't explicit instructions for us if we're going to go and share about him. They're tied to their particular situation. And the reason he gives them these instructions is so it emphasizes that they are dependent on God and that they have a message of peace to share. They're only to make basic preparations. We can see that in their instruction he gives them at the end to not put on two tunics. You're just supposed to have one article of clothing he tells them for this situation to emphasize again that they're relying on God. They only need to take what they absolutely need because they're to travel quickly, to spread this message rapidly. He sent them out, you need to go quickly, share this, and then come back. Perhaps this going out rapidly and even some of the things he says has kind of an echo in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God's people were in slavery, but God worked some mighty wonders and miracles to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And right before they were freed, God gave them some instructions about a meal they were to have. Look what he says in Exodus 12, 11. He says, in this manner you shall eat this meal, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover seems Jesus has a similar idea. Just as they ate that meal and they quickly left and went, Jesus is sending his disciples quickly. One pastor, Jason Meyer, puts it this way. Perhaps what's happening here is God is about to act. He's going to reveal something every bit as important as the Exodus. But this time, the judgment's not going to fall on those Egyptians, but those Israelites, those who claim to be God's people, if they do not repent, if they do not hear the message that the the disciples have. And so these 12 are sent out. Now Jesus tells them before they go that they're to stay in the same house, he says in verse 10. Stay wherever you are in the town. They're not to misuse hospitality, look for somewhere better to go. No, they're to be accountable. They're to focus on the mission, not the other benefits that could come. They're to rely on those who do receive God's truth because they depend on God not their money, not their talents, not their resources. But here's where I want to focus in this section. It's this verse 11, because it speaks to those who will not receive them. It says, if any place will not receive you, if they will not listen to you, if they will not welcome you, then Jesus tells the disciples to leave, to move on, to shake the dust from their feet. And remember, they're prepared for exactly this type of rejection. They just saw it happen to Jesus. He went to his hometown, and his hometown said, we don't want you, and so Jesus left. They're prepared because they know that if they're rejected, it's actually the people rejecting Jesus and rejecting God. 
which is what pagans, what non-believers do. They turn away from God. Jesus would say in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And how the disciples are received will show whether or not this message of good news has been accepted or not. Now, in the passage, it talks about that thing shaking off the dust of their feet. And that's kind of an odd thing. That's not something we do today. That image doesn't quite make sense to us. But it was supposed to be a picture to the town that they were leaving it accountable to God. They were trusting God to take care of that town according to his justice in his time. It was a merciful warning to them. It was saying, we shared about God, now you're left to see what God will do to those who do not belong to him. It was their last warning. You're rejecting God, beware what comes next. By doing this, they'd be relying on a truth that the Apostle Paul would write later. In Romans 12, Paul says to Christians, never avenge yourself. Don't take revenge. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. They're trusting God to take care of what's happening here. They don't have to make everyone believe. They share, and if they don't want it, they move on. Later disciples will actually put this into practice. If we go to Acts chapter 13, it tells us about two more of Jesus' followers, not while he was alive, but afterwards, men named Paul and Barnabas. And listen to this. It says, the word of the Lord was spreading in that region, but Jews who did not believe in Jesus, they incited devout women of high standing, the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They drove them out of their district. And so what do Paul and Barnabas do? Well, we see in the next verse that they shook off the dust from their feet against them. And they went on to Iconium, the next town. They're doing just what Jesus said. They're, they're saying, okay, well, we're leaving you then. But note how they do it. They don't shake them out. It's not with anger. It's not like, well, pardon my language, it's, it's, but it's not the idea of, well, then you go to hell, people. We don't want you. It's not that. Look what it says. They were filled with joy, the Holy Spirit. They know that they're following God. They're saying, okay, God, we're going to trust you to deal with this town. We are moving on. And in just the same way, that's what Jesus' disciples are to do here. And they do it. They go, they proclaim, they preach that people should repent. And they drove and cast out many demons. They anointed people with oil and healed their sickness. Again, that, that's kind of an odd thing to us today, but oil was used to represent dedicating someone to healing. There's nothing magical about it. Sometimes we, we do it today. The book of James talks about that if someone's sick, if they want the elders of the church to come, they can come and anoint with oil. It's not that it's a particular magic action or something. It's gathering the elders to pray for someone and to dedicate them to God. Say, God, we can't heal this person. We're trusting you to be in control. It's not a magic trick that works all at once, but sometimes we model this as well. Here, though, it's God choosing to heal, working through these apostles. It's a preview of the greater perfect healing that is to come at his return. For these disciples right now, they were specially empowered to provide healing through this action. It's not because they were special, they had greater faith, but no, they had Christ's authority to bring healing and to emphasize their message that people needed to repent or turn. Okay, so that's what's happening there, but what in the world does that mean for us? I wanted to talk about that now, talk about us. 
we read that Jesus' followers may be rejected as they share about him. Why, though, are Jesus' people rejected? Why are believers in Jesus who talk about him, why do people turn away from them? Well, because we have an uncomfortable message. That message is that we call sinners, we call those who rebel against God to repent, to repent. Now, maybe that's not a word you're familiar with, but repentance means to turn. It means to turn from our sin, our rebellion, the wrong that we do against God, our selfishness, our wrong choices. It's to turn away from that, to turn toward God in faith and trust. This has been what Jesus has been emphasizing again and again. The very first thing he said in the Gospel of Mark was this. We look back in chapter 1. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into this region of Galilee. He proclaimed the gospel, the good news of God. What is that gospel? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is a call to see sin in our lives, to mourn that sin, confess it to God, hate that sin, and then turn away from it toward the Lord in faith and trust. It's to wholly turn toward God. It doesn't mean that we never sin or mess up again, but it means that our life is now oriented to, focused on God and His will. It's a definitive turn from sin. It will lead to more change. We'll have more repenting, more turning away, more growth toward Jesus, but it's a definitive action, a moment that then sets the course for our life. That's the message we have, is you need to repent and turn, but people don't like hearing that. People don't like being told that they're wrong, that they need to change what they're doing. But that's the message Jesus gives us, because we have to be honest about the danger people face, even though some won't accept it. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians that if our gospel, if this message is veiled or hidden, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Repentance and faith, turning from sin, believing in Jesus, they are necessary to be a part of God's people, to live in his light. It's important to tie these together. Becoming a Christian is not just believing certain facts about Jesus. It's turning away from sin and trusting in who he is. It's repenting and believing. They're not two things. It's one thing happening together, turning from something to something else. If you listen closely to me when I share just about every single week, probably 99% of the time, I say something along the lines of repent, turn from sin toward faith, trust in Jesus. I say it because it's that important. That is how we come to know him. And let me ask you, have you done that? Have you turned from sin and believed, trusted in Christ, that he died for you, he paid for you, he made a way for you to be restored to God? Have you left what is old to believe and trust in him and find new eternal life. This is the message that Jesus taught and that his disciples taught as well. It's the message that God's people had been sharing. Someone else who was sharing this around the same time was John the Baptist, the one who came just before Jesus to prepare the way for him. And the very next story that we see is going to be what happens when John shares that message. 
If you've been here, we've talked about in Mark, he likes to do these things that scholars very technically call Mark sandwiches. And all that means is he starts a story, some, a different story happens in the middle, and then he goes back to the first one. And there's one of those here. Jesus sends out his disciples, then there's a story about John the Baptist, and then his disciples come back again. Here, this sandwich is supposed to give us, leave us with an impression emphasize a point that rejection and suffering for following God is very real. And we'll get to that story in a second, but for right now, when that rejection and suffering comes, what should we do? Well, our passage shows us we should do good and share the good news. Do good, share the good news, continue serving God faithfully. Just because someone turns away from us is not a call to say, well, then I'm done with this telling people about Jesus thing. No, We continue in our good work. Because in our passage, verses 12 and 13, even though Jesus was rejected and he told them, you will be rejected too, the disciples continued their mission. They told people to repent. They healed. They did their work. And their work testified and declared that God's kingdom is coming. So what does that mean for us? That means if we tell someone we believe and trust in Jesus and they don't like that, well, then we continue to extend Christ's love to that person. Romans chapter 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't respond in turn, but we continue to do what Christ has told us to do, to love others, to show compassion to the broken, to seek justice, feed the hungry, care for the sick, We have been given much to do for God's glory. And there is far too much that we need to do to be slowed by something as insignificant as someone rejecting Christ's truth. So what if the lost world rejects our message or somebody turns away from you because you tell them what Jesus has said? We shouldn't complain or grumble about it. Like, oh, these people, people need to believe more in Jesus these days. Yes, so tell people about Jesus then. Continue doing God's good work. And one of the main aspects of that good work is sharing that good news. It's the calling on God's people to preach the gospel, the good news, even in the face of that rejection. Because we share, our responsibility is to tell others we are not responsible for the results. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, he says about his work in sharing the gospel, he said, I planted, like I started this work, I planted a seed. Another guy named Apollos, he watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God's responsible for the results. We're called to tell others, hey, this is who Jesus is. God takes care of the rest. Now, like we read here, like those disciples shaking the dust off the feet, there may come a time where we share with someone and they say, I'm not interested in that. And so then we say, okay, well, then I'm going to move on, share with someone else. Sometimes there's a time to to persevere. Sometimes wisdom says there's a time to move on. But still, we share, knowing that God works through our sharing the gospel for his glory. Now, you may have some questions about that. You may say, okay, I I see that Jesus sent them out. I see he wants us to share, but I'm wondering the why behind this. If people are going to reject this, then why bother going through all the effort to share with others? Well, 
The next section of our passage we're going to look at is going to answer that question, looking at the death of John the Baptist. We're going to look at it here in Mark 6. It's also in Matthew 14 and Luke 9. Before I look at that, though, I want to introduce you to three characters we're going to run into in this passage who we haven't met before. We've met John the Baptist. He came before Jesus, was actually his cousin. He baptized Jesus. He told people that Christ was coming, that they needed to repent, be ready for him. But we're going to meet three other people here. One of them is a guy named Herod. His name is Herod Antipas, is what people call him. Uh, he's also known as Herod the Tetrarch. He wasn't a king per se in that he didn't have absolute authority. The Romans, who were in charge, had given him a territory to rule over. He ruled over the regions of Galilee and Perea. So he was kind of a lesser king. He was actually the son of another guy named Herod, who you may remember from earlier in Jesus's life, the Herod who tried to kill babies when Jesus was born. So it's not that Herod, it's his son here. So this Herod, he was assigned his own little kingdom here. He married the daughter of another nearby king, but then this Herod decided to divorce that wife, and instead he married his niece, a woman named Herodias, who had previously been married to her uncle, Antipas's brother named Philip. So if you're putting this all together, this is his niece who was married to his brother, and he got her to leave and marry him instead. So we have Herod, we have his new wife Herodias, and then they, she also has a daughter. We're not told exactly who the father is, but there's a daughter. Um, the Bible doesn't give us her, her name. A scholar writing outside the Bible said her name was Salome. And at the point in our story, she's probably a young teenager, probably between 12 and 14 years old. But to continue the family tradition, history tells us later she would marry another uncle. So it's all in the family here, in the Herod family. So in this messed up family, we're going to see exactly the need about why it's important to share about God. And we need to share his truth because the world does not know who Jesus is. The world does not know who Jesus is. So let me read verses 14 through 16 of this passage. So the disciples have gone out and were told that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Well, it seems that the disciples have been very successful in their mission, in that everybody's heard about Jesus. Everyone in the region is talking about, who is this Jesus guy? Some said he was John the Baptist. Some said resurrected. Some said he's Elijah, a prophet from the Old Testament, who was predicted to come again before the Messiah came. Some said maybe it's another prophet, but everyone's asking the question that our whole series is about, who is Jesus? That's been our focus in Mark, and here we see people are wrestling with that question even here. The question they're worried and wondering about. But the guy we're looking at, Herod, well, he's afraid because he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected, and he knows that he's the one who killed him, and he's afraid of what may happen to him. 
These rumors are going around. Jesus' disciples will share about it. But the truth I want us to see here is that there is confusion about who Jesus is. These people are debating all these options, but the truth is Jesus is greater than those options. He's not John the Baptist raised. He's not Elijah. He's not just another prophet. He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that confusion about who Jesus is, it's not just something that was happening back then. People today are still confused about who Jesus is. Was he a great teacher? Did he exist at all? Was he rebel or radical? Did he support this or that? People are confused and they need to be told the truth. They need to be told that just having a good opinion of Jesus is not the same as having saving faith. They need to hear the truth. In the book of Romans, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone sharing? Brothers and sisters, your your friends, your relatives, acquaintances, and neighbors will not know Jesus. They won't know who he is. They'll remain confused if we do not tell them this is who Jesus is. So the world is confused, and you say, okay, they're confused, but what's the big deal about that? The big deal is because the world also breaks God's law. The world breaks God's law. They violate his character. They rebel against him. They need to know that they are offending God and they are in danger. In the next few verses, we're going to see exactly how this is working out, at least in this family's life. We have a bit of a flashback here because we're at this moment, the disciples are sharing and Herod's like, this sounds like John the Baptist is back from the dead. And so now Mark's going to tell us that story. What happened to John the Baptist? We discover that he had been arrested and imprisoned by Herod. Verses 17 and 18 say, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Why was John arrested? Because he criticized the ruler here, Herod. He criticized his divorce and his remarriage to his sister-in-law and niece. He pointed to the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, they're to be put to death. And that's what he did. He had taken his brother's wife. That's adultery. Or we could look at Leviticus 18, which says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. You're not supposed to take your brother's wife, and you're not supposed to commit adultery at all. John was telling this to Herod. The text conveys to us there in verse 18 that John had been saying to Herod. It's not something he said once. It was something he repeatedly conveyed to this man. Herod's behavior was condemned by God. And even if his peers and flatterers celebrated what he was doing, John spoke the truth, and his words drew their anger. And his new wife, Herodias, she insisted on a consequence, that John should be in prison. And in this moment, we have a powerful example from John the Baptist. He's speaking truth to this man, this man who is not claiming to be a follower of God, not claiming to be a Jew, but still John declared God's truth, because God holds all people accountable. 
we have to share with others the bad news that there is sin in all of us, and that sin pushes us away from God. It's not a message we keep, but we have to tell people there's bad news. You have sinned against God. The good news is Christ can save. But it has to start with that bad news. We need to call sin, sin, not hide it, but acknowledge that sin separates us from God. The British pastor J.C. Ryle said, if we do this, it may give offense. It may entail immense unpopularity. With all this, we have nothing to do. The duty, the duty of sharing is ours. The results are God's. We are to share. Now, that doesn't just mean we walk around anytime we see something, we yell at, at people about they're doing wrong. We need to do this with wisdom. John's not doing this just to condemn him, but with a desire to provoke repentance. We'll see that later because they're talking to one another regularly. Ryle unpacks this some more. He says, if he, if a person believes that another man is injuring his soul, he ought surely to tell him so. If he loves him truly and tenderly, he ought not to let him ruin himself unwarned. Telling this is not to say, well, I'm better than you, shame on you for doing that. No, it's out of desire to say, you're doing something wrong and that puts you in danger with God. And that's why speaking, kind of applying this to 21st century, that's why calling out sin in people, the, the internet and social media is probably not the best place to do it. I would say I really can't think of a reason to do it there. It works better in the context of our spheres of relationships, people we know, people we talk to, people we see on the regular. That's where the conversation should happen. That's where we should speak God's truth to those we know and see, explain to them the seriousness of sin and God's solution to that sin. Over the internet, you, you don't know context. It's hard to convey compassion there, but in person you can say, I love you, but what you're doing right now is wrong and puts you in danger with God. But even if we do that, the world still might not like that message. Look at verses 19 and 20. They tell us that Herodias, the wife, she had a grudge against him, against John, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he, when Herod heard John talk, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see these different reactions between these two. Herodias, she held a grudge against John for questioning her decisions, daring to say she was doing something wrong and she wanted him dead. But for a time, Herod kept him safe because he feared John. He protected him from his wife's wrath. Why did he fear John? Well, maybe it was because so many people thought he was a prophet of God and he was worried about what may happen. Other history sources tell us that later when this Herod died, people said, oh, well, this is judgment against him for killing John the Baptist. Maybe that's it. But here it tells us in the passage something different. It says that he knew, he was knowing that John was a righteous and holy man. He saw John's innocence, his righteousness. He saw his holiness. He saw that he was just in his actions. He knew that John had done no wrong. One pastor, Kent Hughes, said, even the most degraded, I would put the caveat, often recognize the moral authority of goodness. Herod is not a good person, but he can look and see, you know, this is somebody who's doing good. 
and doing right. And many times, even if someone doesn't like what we have to say, they may acknowledge, but they are following God. And so Herod heard John gladly. He liked to listen to what he was saying, but, but no, that's not the same as saving faith, as coming to a right relationship with God. Having joy at someone sharing God's word doesn't mean that we know him. We see something like this earlier in Mark. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks about a parable when he's scattering seed and seed grows, and he talks about some, and look what he says. He says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. In the same way Herod liked hearing about this truth, he liked listening to John, but he remained perplexed, puzzled, disturbed. John, for his part, it seems, kept speaking to him. John was a captive with a captive audience. He wasn't going anywhere, and this guy kept coming, so John kept preaching and sharing, but it seems that Herod's heart remained unchanged. He did not seek truth, or to use the word we talked about earlier, he did not repent, turn from sin. He wouldn't confront his sin. And so let me be clear with all of us here. I love that you're here this morning. That's awesome. That's wonderful. But, but please understand, coming here does not mean that you are then good for eternity. Just because you're here in this building, in this room right now, that doesn't make you right before God. A change has to happen. Repenting, turning from sin, trusting, believing in Jesus, that is what saves, not your presence here. So again, I ask, have you repented have you believed? So this world is breaking God's law, and it gets worse than that because not only do they break God's law, but they don't care for what God is doing. They devalue God's gift of life. Devalue God's gift of life. This Sunday on our denominations calendar, we don't often bring up those things, but sometimes we do, and, and today is the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a Sunday to remember the value that God places on life. And here, we see some people who do not know God and who deny and devalue life and the gift that it is. Let's look at it. First, we see uh, what Herodias does. She wants, this is the wife, she wants John dead, and she finds an opportunity at Herod's birthday party. He has this party with respected people, nobles, military leaders, the wealthy, and he gathers them all together. There's also a little hint there at how wrong he is, because in this day and age, unlike today, today we have birthday parties and we celebrate as a time to get together, but in this day, life was hard, and if you were celebrating a birthday party, it was viewed as being wasteful or a pagan celebration that was often filled with drunkenness and other debauchery and sin. So at this party... Herodias has her daughter, 12 to 14 years old, dance for the party, and the dance pleased Herod and his guests. As 21 and 22 say, opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Now, I have to tell you where my mind kind of goes when I hear this. I remember many years ago, we used to have magazines for kids that we would give them. I don't even know if they publish them anymore. And I remember once this magazine had a contest where it asked you to, the kids, to write a short story 
from the perspective of one of the characters in the Bible. You wrote this short story, and you're supposed to draw a picture of the event as well. And the one that stood out to me the most was by this poor sweet girl. She wrote this story from the perspective of this daughter here, Salome. And in her story, this girl must have loved to dance. She said, in my story, I love dancing. I have this lovely dance routine. She had a picture of a girl in a nice cute tutu and twirling ribbons that, that she was there. I did this dance, but then I had to ask for somebody's head. It was really weird. And that, that was the story there. It must have been well-written because I, I remember it. It still stands out. But with all apologies to that innocent author who wrote that story 20 plus years ago, uh, that's, that's not what's going on here in this passage. It's not a little dance routine. There are some pretty strong sexual undertones with the words here, dancing and pleasing Herod and his guest. This is a young girl who is made to dance for the sexual pleasure of his uncle, of her uncle and his friends. That's what's going on right here. It's a disturbing disgusting action here that is just showing how little they cared about life. King Herod, he didn't care for this, this girl. All he cared about was her body and the pleasure that seeing it brought him. And so he promises her a reward, whatever he wants. He says in verse 23, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. That's a language of a public oath. We see it in the Old Testament in like the book of Esther. It's not literal that he would give half the kingdom. It's saying you can get anything that you want. And so she goes to her mom and came back immediately in a hurry, asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. As the text says, she went out, said to her mother, for what should I ask? She said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste, not, not an innocent little girl, but part of mom's plan here is saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And for the Herod family, this is the end of this annoyance. This person who critiqued them is now gone because they didn't care about him at all. This was their attitude to life. If somebody is annoying you, you get rid of them. You cut them out, you kill them, and then it's gone. And that's often the attitude, it seems, the world, those who do not know Jesus, have today about life. If somebody doesn't fit in, then, then they need to go. And a culture that applauds sexual sin and death is a culture that needs the good news. I hope you also see here that there's nothing new under the sun. That type of awful sin was going on among the leaders of the people. That was known to everyone. It's a culture that needs to hear about Christ. As for Herod, we read that he is exceedingly sorrowful. He's greatly distressed because he still fears John. But he thinks about it for a second and he ultimately succumbs to peer pressure. He lets his pride take over. He doesn't want to publicly break his oath. 26 through 28, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. Herod feared what others, what his friends supposedly would think about him. He wanted to people please more than he valued this human life, who he knew had done nothing wrong. In this picture of a leader failing to do the right thing and being manipulated by a crowd, it's, it's also something that will then happen to Jesus later in this book. 
In Mark 15, a crowd cries out about Jesus, crucify him. The Roman leader, Pilate, who knows better, says, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them a criminal named Barabbas. He scourged Jesus, that means whipped him to the point of death, and then delivered him to be crucified. In both of these instances, we see that sometimes people value what others think more than they value human life. And it's easy to look and say, well, shame on those who do that. But sometimes in our own little areas, we can value what our friends think more than what we do or say about someone else. If our friends say, let's talk bad about this person, we we can engage in that because we said, yeah, that person doesn't matter. What matters are these people I'm with right now. And even then, we're devaluing God's gift of life. But God values people much more than that. To God, every human being has worth and value. From our conception all the way to our natural death and every step in between, human beings have value because we're here because of God's gift of life. As for Herod, again, I have to point out, he's exceedingly sorry but that's not the same thing as being repentant. Being sorry does not mean repent, because repent means to turn. Feeling bad about sin, crying about it, apologizing about it is not repenting. Every person has a conscience. He feels, yeah, this was a bad thing to do, but not every person repents. And a conscience can be hardened or distorted. Repentance isn't feeling sorry. It's a change of direction. It's moving away from sin Towards God. It's a change of life that happens. It's something that's seen over time, not necessarily in words we say right at once. So in this, we see that we have this message to repent. We're to continue doing good in what we do, sharing this good news because this lost world doesn't know Jesus. They're breaking his law. They're devaluing his gift of life. We see this need is great, but if we want to know the full picture, we'll probably ask the question, but what will it cost to do this? And for John the Baptist and probably us, it will cost everything. What will it cost? Everything. Following Jesus in God's kingdom has a high cost. John is killed for his faithful witness. He had disciples and followers too, and when he died, they came to collect the body. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came, they took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. He dies, he's buried in a tomb by some of his followers, just like Jesus will be later in this book. The difference is that John was innocent and he died because of Herod's sin. Herod said, I'm going to kill you, and that's why he died. Jesus would die to pay for our sins, to die so that we could know God. And also, this death of John, though, it paints a picture for us of what the cost may be if we tell others about him. The verse we read earlier before the message started was from Mark 8, where Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friends, I don't know what it will look like in each person's life, but God's word tells us that if we're faithful in sharing about him, there will be some type of cost. We may lose some friendships. 
It, it could involve losing a job. It could involve a reputation being lost. It could be something as small but still difficult as perhaps our comfort, what, how we're used to living, the relationships we're used to having. Maybe it's not the same because we need to be honest about who Christ is. And maybe, like John, it will cost our lives. But whatever that bad, that struggle is, the Scripture doesn't deny that it's bad, that it's rough, that it's hard, but instead it paints a hope, a confidence for something better. I, I love this verse. This is Paul, 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about all the suffering now, and I love what he calls it, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It doesn't mean Paul says it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's okay to say, it's not okay to say, God, I'm struggling with this. Of course we can say that. God, I'm struggling with this. This is really hard. Or telling others, I'm, I'm really struggling to be faithful to God in this area. Absolutely. But he's saying in the perspective of eternity, this is light and momentary. There's an eternal weight of glory, something far better that is ahead. So friends, you see it every week in our bulletin that we share about stories about how we've told others about God. Let me ask you, will you seize that opportunity to offer people Jesus the hope that they need? If you don't know him, will you repent, turn from sin, believe in him, take that hope for the future? In either case, whether we share or we receive it, that hope in Jesus is what we need. And sharing about him is worth it because he alone is worthy of all honor and glory and of giving up our lives for him.